Good evening, everybody. Sorry, I'm laughing here because uh, I'm enjoying listening to the Superman theme being played uh, by the Arlotro band here. Uh, <laughs> thanks for the, the pre-show entertainment there. That was pretty cool. Um, all right. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. Sorry, yeah, that's what uh, a, a, a couple of you had uh, <laughs> heard me chuckling there before I uh, hit my other button there. Um, uh, <laughs> was I sniggering at you guys in the chat? No, I saw what you guys were doing on the chat. Uh, and uh, I, it, was, it was kind of amusing, too. But see, I was just amused all around. Everyone was amusing here before class began. Uh, welcome. Welcome back to episode number 120 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings, in which we will finish. We're at this is happening. We are going to finish the Arundel was a Mariner poem uh, tonight. That's certainly occurring. And uh, uh, yeah, no, that's absolutely um, uh, that's absolutely happening. So yeah, so we're going to do that. Um, and well, it's okay. All right, let me clarify. At least we're going to finish the uh, version of the poem that's in the book. Right. And then I'm going to do probably next week. Um, I'm going to do a little sort of a little lecture, uh, when, when we go through the older versions of the poem, uh, cause I really want to draw your attention to sort of how that process worked cause it's awesome. Um, and I just, I love seeing the, the, uh, the evolution, not only of this poem, um, there are several ways, several versions of things that we can see, like several different, uh, poems that Tolkien wrote where Christopher has given us older versions and things so that we can see how the poem grows over time. And it's always really interesting to see one, for instance, of those that's most interesting, uh, is the one that's called Cortirian Among the Trees, which we can see him writing way back in like 1916. So he was like super young uh, when he wrote this. Um, and then he wrote a couple, he wrote two versions of it back then. And then he revised it again, like 50 years later when he was preparing, um, like, so in the middle, in mid sixties, uh, 1964, I think when he was, uh, preparing the, uh, adventures of Tom Bombadil poetry collection, uh, near the end of his life. Um, so looking at, you know, the way in which that poem changes over the course of the year is really fascinating, but this is way more than that. Uh, because not only do we get to see the way that the poem itself evolves, we can see how the whole the entire frame of the ideas behind it um, are changing. And the question, you know, when you just read the original poem, the Errantry poem, and then you like look back at the A. Arendel poem that Bilbo has uh, recited in Rivendell, and you're like, dude, like how on earth um, does that happen? You know, how do you, uh, how do you get from one to the other? Um, then, um, you know, anyway, it's, it's really cool. It's really fun to see. Um, so, uh, cool. Hey, uh, you know, I'm actually, sorry, I'm very interested to hear that a couple of you are having trouble with the Twitch stream. I'm interested to hear that because that happened to me earlier on today, too. Uh, when my son was doing his stream this afternoon, it, like, looked for all the world like it had just kicked out and died. Um, but then, apparently, it was okay and was working for most people. I have no idea what's up with that. I cannot explain the way that Twitch appears to be behaving here. But all I can say is it did seem to be fine. Uh, and uh, I'm not <laughs> Sure. So Kona, I would just say, keep it up. Just keep it up. It'll get there somehow or other. Um, again, not at all sure what the problem is there. Um, but anyway, um, 
Welcome back. So I was at Middlemoot this past weekend. I just returned from Iowa yesterday, uh, and I had a wonderful time, as always. Got to meet several of you there. Uh, of course, was hanging out uh, with Mad Violinist and his family. Um, in fact, it was really awesome. His son, Zach, is super cool. Uh, I mean, you know, his wife is cool, too, and he's also all right. But his son, Zach, was really, really cool. Um, I'm going to post a video later on of... Um, I was trying to broadcast this on Twitch, but the internet was like completely failing. It was like terrible, terrible Wi-Fi and uh, interrupted uh, cell service. So I wasn't able to stream it live from Twitch as I had hoped to do. But we took a video, which I'm going to post uh, to YouTube at the, li at, at the, at the least, um, of uh, a, a, a Hobbit pub game, a Hobbit story-based pub game that we were playing uh, after, uh, after uh, Middle Moot. And, uh, uh, and it was really cool. And the... Um, uh, so Mad Violinist Sun Zach, uh, like popped in and, and he was like, can I play? And, and, uh, it was, it was really, really neat. Yeah. Rowan of Gondor was there and, uh, there were several, I was trying to think of who else is here who was there. I'm trying to like connect my brain to real names and screen names, uh, which I often forget which one of you belong to which, uh, when I, uh, when I meet you in person at uh, Moots, Rowan and I were talking about that, uh, actually, uh, uh, on Saturday. So anyway, uh, yeah, so uh, great to see the folks who are there. I had a really good time. Looking forward to uh, future opportunities soon to um, uh, to catch up with uh, more of you at future Moots. Uh, the next one's coming up. So we had been going to do Magnolia Moot, but we postponed that. Uh, we're, we pushed that ahead to the spring instead, which I think is going to be much better. Um, so we will have, um, uh, we're going to have um, Magnolia Moot in April. Uh, Mid-April is what we're thinking of now, which means that now the next moot coming up is Bay Moot, uh, which we're looking at the weekend before Thanksgiving. So we'll have confirmation in the registration for up, up for that very soon. Um, but uh, but that's definitely that that's the next one that's coming up, and then we've got a bunch coming up this coming spring, uh, starting February, February, March, and April. We're gonna have at least four uh, in those three months. So uh, and yes, D May. So word on the European moot. The word on the European moot this year um, is we're not that one. We're moving to some of these are changing seasons. It happens sometimes. Um, so like Magnolia moot was is moving from fall to spring. Um, Europe moot, we're going to move from spring to fall, actually. Um, and the current word uh, is Wales in September. Yeah, September. So, DMA, like uh, Labor Day, American Labor Day, uh, is right around the time that we're looking at for... Um, uh, for basically, uh, uh, dragon moot in Wales. Uh, so that's the, that's the plan. And maybe some extra fun, um, like tours and trips that could be, uh, adjacent to the moot as well. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited. I, I went I've not been to Wales in several years now. Goodness. Nine years, I think, since I've been to Wales. Well, I visited with my family in 2012. So it was only seven years, but still we only visited for like one day. Um, anyhow, yeah, it's, uh, yes, JJ, the plan I believe is it for actually to be Labor Day weekend. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the plan. Um, but, um, Anyway, like I said, it's not uh, not 100% confirmed yet. We need to make sure that we, you know, because we, we have to have definite uh, a definite agreement with the venue before I can totally officially announce the date. But that is definitely the plan. Yeah. Um, 
So, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, let's see. What else? And then, of course, there are still other uh, other moots in the offing. We definitely have Tex moot uh, beginning of February, February 8th, I think. We have LA moot later in February. Um uh, in our uh, really cool, fun venue for that this year. Um, we have um, uh, Sunshine Moot again in Orlando in March, and we have uh, uh, Magnolia Moot in April. So uh, a great spring moot schedule uh, coming up here. Um, anyway... So really fun times. Again, I just it's if you haven't been to a regional moot, uh, I hope that you will soon be able to. Um, you know, these are, of course, really low key events in like every sense. Right. Low key in the sense of it's very inexpensive. Right. It's they're like 30, 40 bucks for the whole day. And that usually includes lunch. Um and uh, they're, you know, they're a, a sort of a small group of people. It's it's like, you know, several people were talking about this at Middlemoot. You know, it's like you it's like you find your tribe, right? You know, uh, spending a day in the company of people who like share your enthusiasms, right? And whom you can talk to, you know, about all this stuff um, was just uh, 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 joking with um, uh, with. Uh, uh, Becky, the uh, young woman who came to Middlemoot for the first time this year, and uh, she was wearing this really cool shirt that said, "Like I survived the uh, uh, the Fanorian family reunion," and and she was you know sort of saying about how like she'd only ever like there's there's only ever, like two people who had ever gotten her shirt, and she was like all day everybody was coming up and complimenting me on my shirt. Yeah, and we all agreed she had absolutely the coolest shirt there. Um, but um, <laughs> anyway, uh, it was uh, it's just that kind of thing, right? We're just sort of surrounded by people who get the things that you like and who like the things that you get. So, um, hey, Kelly, there you go. Did I say? Oh, sorry, I said the wrong name. There you go. Hey, OK, excellent. See, look at that. I'm connecting more screen names. Um, but yeah, anyway, that was that was definitely the short of the night day, the whole day. Anyway, okay, so I hope that you guys will definitely see if you can get to a regional moot that's near you, and if there's not one near you now, we're, I'm hoping that there will be soon as we continue to expand uh, that program. And if you're interested in helping to organize a moot near you, let us know. Send us an email, and we will um, um, we will be in touch and see what we can do. Um, that's how most of these got started, after all. Um, uh, m most of the ones that we currently have. Um, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, and DMA, you know, Alaska, right? <laughs> I'm st we're still looking forward to uh, maybe someday we will put together... Um, what was that name Matthias was suggesting? Remote? Yes. Uh, yeah. Remote. Uh, and <laughs> who knows? DMA, the Helcaraxa moot. There it is. Right. Why not? Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, you know, a moot in Alaska convenient to so many people and bears and others who might attend. <laughs> right. It would be fun. It would be fun. And actually, Tony, um, Colorado. I was talking about a Denver moot um, with Rowan of Gondor, I believe, who's also um, uh, in Colorado. Uh, so, hey, you know, maybe, maybe that would, maybe the, maybe the mountain moot can uh, can still happen there. But anyhow, okay, 
So that's what's going on. Don't forget also this coming weekend, this coming weekend, uh, the 19th of what's the month now? October. October 19th uh, is our finale event for the fall fundraising campaign this year. Uh, so we're, uh, I'm looking forward to that. It's always a fun event, the Webathon that we've done every year. So there'll be uh, a bunch of different events. It's going to be starting at noon Eastern time. Uh, so I hope that you'll be able to, to join us for that as we, uh, uh, have the culmination of our, uh, fundraising campaign. There will be trivia contests. There will be, uh, there'll be sort of different programmings and shows, um, there will be uh, 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 maybe I'll do some more uh, uh, more Lotro Marathon. I'm still kind of still kind of up in the air about that, but that may, that kind of depends in part upon other external scheduling things that I'm trying to figure out. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's going to be fun. So I hope that you will uh, uh, that you will join me uh, for that. Um, we could do reenactments involving the Misty Mountains in Colorado. Yeah, Brandon, let's go to Colorado and see if we can reenact the uh, sliding down the hill uh, <laughs> from The Hobbit. <laughs> right? Let's see. Let's see if we can do that. That would be fun. And uh, we'd have to, I think, beef up our insurance a bit before we tried to reenact that one. But oh, by the way, that reminds me. So our reenactment of the seating arrangements had to be postponed. We didn't end up getting to do the reenactment of the seating arrangements. We couldn't get like the physical stuff together and the best opportunity we had was at the restaurant where we were eating afterwards but like the it was they were like benches it was really hard so we end and not to mention it was like super super loud there so we didn't end up um we didn't end up getting to do our reenactment there so we we that we've we've postponed that and we're going to look for another occasion maybe bay moot we'll see um yep yeah, <laughs> i suppose we could Try to reenact the 15 birds and five fir trees scene, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think our insurance would have to be very greatly increased for that one. Um, yeah, yeah. Reenact hauling Bomber up on ropes. <laughs> well, yeah, there are all kinds of Hobbit reenactments that we could do. All of these very, very active and perilous sounding reenactments from The Hobbit. Um, yeah. No, all kinds of interesting and mostly inappropriate options. I think that's, uh, I think that's good. Okay. Anyway, let us, uh, let us get back, uh, to the text here. Um, so there we go. Um, all right. Okay. Excellent. Okay, so tonight we are going to finish the poem, as I said. So let us go through as we've been doing before. I'll start reading through from the beginning, and then I'll stop when we get to where I'll try to remember the correct place to stop tonight, as we have the last two stanzas to do tonight. Arendel was a mariner that tarried in Arvernian. He built a boat of Timberfeld in Nimbrathil to journey in. Her sails he wove of silver fair, of silver were her lanterns made, her prow he fashioned like a swan, and light upon her banners laid. 
In panoply of ancient kings, in chained rings he armored him. His shining shield was scored with runes to ward all wounds and harm from him. His bow was made of dragon horn, his arrow shorn of ebony, of silver was his haberdjon, his scabbard of chalcedony. His sword of steel was valiant, of adamant his helmet tall, as eagle, an eagle plume upon his crest, upon his breast an emerald. Beneath the moon and under star he wandered far from northern strands, bewildered on enchanted ways beyond the days of mortal lands. From gnashing of the narrow ice where shadow lies on frozen hills, from nether heats and burning waste he turned in haste, and roving still on starless waters far astray, at last he came to night of naught, and passed, and never sight he saw of shining shore nor light he sought. The winds of wrath came driving him, and blindly in the foam he fled, from west to east and errandless, unheralded he homeward sped. There flying Elwing came to him, and flame was in the darkness lit, more bright than light of diamond the fire upon her carcanet. The Silmaril she bound on him, and crowned him with the living light, and dauntless then with burning brow he turned his prow, and in the night from other world beyond the sea there strong and free a storm arose, a wind of power in Tarmanel, by paths that seldom mortal goes, his boat it bore with biting breath as might of death across the grey and long-forsaken seas distressed, from east to west he passed away. Through Evernight he back was borne, on black and roaring waves that ran, or leagues unlit in foundered shores that drowned before the days began, until he heard on strands of pearl where ends the world the music long, where ever foaming billows roll the yellow gold and jewels wan. He saw the mountain silent rise, where twilight lies upon the knees of Valinor, and Eldamar beheld afar beyond the seas. A wanderer escaped from night, to haven white he came at last, to elven home, the green and fair, where keen the air, where pale as glass, beneath the hill of Ilmarin, a glimmer in a valley sheer, the lamplit towers of Tyrion are mirrored on the shadowmere. He tarried there from errantry, and melodies they taught to him, and sages old him marvels told, and harps of gold they brought to him. They clothed him then in elven white, and seven lights before him sent, as through the Calakirian to hidden land forlorn he went. He came unto the timeless halls, where shining fall the countless years, and endless reigns the elder king in Ilmarin on mountain sheer. And words unheard were spoken then, of folk of men and elven kin, beyond the world were visions showed forbid to those that dwell therein. A ship then new they built for him, of mithril and of elven glass, with shining prow, no shaven oar nor sail she bore on silver mast, the, the silmaril as lantern light and banner bright with living flame to glean thereon by Elbereth herself was set, who thither came, and wings immortal made for him, and laid on him undying doom, to sail the shoreless skies and come behind the sun and light of moon. Okay, ready? 
From ever even's lofty hills where softly silver fountains fall, his wings him bore, a wandering light, beyond the mighty mountain wall. From world's end then he turned away, and yearned again to find afar his home through shadows journeying, and burning as an island star, on high above the mists he came, a distant flame before the sun, a wonder ere the waking dawn where grey the Norland waters run. Okay, so the first thing I notice, just based on my breath, uh, is that uh, this is, again, a very long sentence, right? We have two sentences in this stanza. The first quatrain is one sentence, right? And the second two quatrains, the next eight lines, are one other sentence, Right now, we remember that the last time the, the in in last week's class when we were looking at stanza six and seven, we were noticing a lot of um, a lot of the passive voice. Right, how uh, Arendel's big moment, big heroic moment, everything he actually does was de-emphasized. Right through the use of the passive voice, there was no and Arendel came. Right, there, we we didn't get any moment like that uh, with Arendel, which you'd think was good. We don't even know what his errand was. We're never told what his errand was. Um, but um, but instead, right, we have we were beginning to see that the primary emphasis of the poem is not on what Arendel does, but on what happens to Arendel. Right. And the way in which the doer of the action, um, not just that Arendel's actions were were downplayed, but that even the actions done to him were very often with the one exception of Elbereth setting the Silmaril herself upon the the presumably the mast. Right. I think we agreed on that. Um, anyway, that that's prime that apart from Elbereth, n we weren't even told who was doing it. Right. So that the general sense that we were gleaning from those last two stanzas was that, again, it's primarily about what happens to A.R. Rendell, but it's not about complaining that somebody did it to him, right? It's just about what happened to A.R. Rendell. Um, now, Luke, uh, yes, I, you know, the mast and not the prow, I, I think it could be the prow. Um, I still think the thing that makes me think that the mast makes most sense is the business about the banner, right? That it's uh, the Silmaril as banner bright, which means probably the top of the mast. Um, but um, yeah, <laughs> Valori says that it's a very hobbity point of view of ancient history. Heroic things were done by heroes long ago. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, again, except not even that much is quite stated. Right. I mean, it's not only that uh, we're told that a great heroic deed was done and, you know, kind of de-emphasizing that it was Arendel who did it. Again, we're not even it doesn't even say what exactly he did. I mean, the closest we got as far as his actual errand was concerned um, was and words unheard were spoken then of folk of men and elven kin. Yeah, I mean, and that I would only guess that that was his errand, that that was his great deed, because I know what it is. Right. I, I, I am I am importing from the Silmarillion knowledge of what Arendel actually accomplished. Right. Which was delivering the, you know, the 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 the, the you know, the plea for help from elves and men. 
And that's the only thing that leads me to suspect that those two lines contains the actual, the actual errand, right? If I didn't know that, I wouldn't have any suspicion. I mean, we don't even know who is speaking the words unheard to whom there. Is it Arendel? Is it to him? Especially since in the last two lines there with the, the visions showed forbid to those that dwell therein, it's probably, it seems not to be right. That there, Arendel certainly seems to be the one receiving the vision. So is he also therefore receiving the words unheard in the previous two lines? That seems likely in context. So is that even talking about it? I don't even know. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. So back to stanza eight. And also remember where we just were, right? We just finished giving him his new ship, right? And laid on him undying doom to sail the shoreless skies and come behind the sun and light of moon was where we just finished. Um, now, of course, we know, as we discussed, that doom isn't a bad thing necessarily, Right. Uh, just because uh, an undying doom is laid upon him doesn't mean that something terrible has happened. Right. Um, it might not have been a terrible thing that happened. You know, the doom uh, is uh, undying doom. Yeah. Uh, uh, as uh, Kurtzimus says, that could translate to immortality is laid upon him, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, that that's a good thing, right? Especially since the word immortal, Kurtzimus, is used in the previous line, right? Wings immortal made for him and laid on him undying doom. Um, now, the way that it goes, though, undying doom to sail the shoreless skies and come behind the sun and light of moon. So if he's being enabled to sail the shoreless skies and come behind the sun and light of moon, that's kind of cool, right? I mean, that's, I mean, more than a little bit awesome. He's able to sail in the sky. He's been, you know, given a flying ship. That's pretty cool. Um, the word doom though, if we were to stop at that line, like the word doom is kind of, um, uh, is kind of a, a pivotal word there. Right. And I don't just mean that as a vague kind of, uh, you know, word meaning it's a big deal. I mean, like it literally sort of pivots there, right? Think about it. If we stopped there, right. If you just had, and wings immortal made for him, you know, uh, uh, to gleam thereon by Elbereth herself was set, who thither came and wings immortal made for him and laid on him undying doom. Right, Kurtzimus, that kind of sounds just like you were saying, right? Hey, and he's made immortal, right? Double bonus. That's really sweet. But if we then move on, laid on him undying doom to sail the shoreless skies and come behind the sun in light of moon. It's again the the ability to fly up into the sky where um, mortals can't go sounds like a good thing, but when you're when you have undying doom laid on you to do something, right? The infinitive verb that comes after um, means this is his doom, right? This is the thing he's been doomed to do, fated, destined to do. Um, to sail the shoreless skies and come behind the sun and light of moon. Now, 
again, just to say his doom is to sail the shoreless skies. That just means it's his destiny to sail up there. Right. But um, when it's an undying doom, we begin to see uh, that he's not coming back. Right. Um, now he takes off. From ever even's lofty hills where softly silver fountains fall, his wings him bore, a wandering light beyond the mighty mountain wall. Yeah, Tony says it's also him being constrained from doing other things. Probably. Probably so. Um, from ever even. Now, ever even? Uh, why is it ever even? Or, or at least what... Um, um, what should we be remembering when he talks about ever even? He's in the West, a place of perpetual twilight. Yeah, yeah. Um, remember, there's another place we should be remembering earlier in the poem. Mm-hmm. We're scrolling back. There it is. Evernight. Through Evernight he back was born on black and roaring waves that ran, or leagues unlit and foundered shores that drowned before the days began, right? So he was in Evernight before, and now he's in Ever Even. Right? So he's gone westward through the night. Right. And come to not the morning, which so often follows the night. Right. But he's gone to the even. In fact, he's not only gone to an evening after a night, he is in ever even. Right. The place where it's always evening, the place where it's always twilight. So there's this sense there of... um and we talked about this a little bit, looking at the time. Remember all that time language that we got, especially back in stanza six, um, about um, uh, the Elder King. Remember that? We got that th uh, three lines in a row there. He came unto the timeless halls where shining fall the countless years and endless reigns the Elder King. Um, we had that sense of him kind of going outside of time, right? Um, yeah, Fourth Thoughtless says, would this mean that there should be an ever day? Even farther west. Well, funny that you mentioned that, Fourth Dauntless. Keep that in mind. No, we're not going to see that in this poem, but keep that in mind. We'll talk about that again. I think that we'll see we'll see that next time, actually. Because, um, uh, yeah, there is uh, uh, ever noon, I think, not ever day, uh, but ever noon, as I recall. Um, anyway. Not here in this poem, but in one of the earlier versions uh, of the of the poem. But again, in coming, in passing through the Calicurian to hidden land forlorn, right? Um, he leaves time behind, right? In a sense, he's now in timeless halls, uh, watching, apparently, right, or being told at least that the the countless years fall shining there and endless rains, the elder King. Um, so again, lots of, um, lots of time imagery, timeless imagery. And so 
his time has not just gone backwards. He's gone out of the regular circuit um, as he goes from e from ever night, not only to evening, but to ever even. Um, OK. Let's see. OK, Tony. Hmm. Uh, Tony has a question about the elder king. Is Manway just the first king or high king over all kings? As in, does he have authority over other kings? Yes. Yes. Both. Both. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, okay. From Everevens lofty hills where softly silver fountains fall. And who was it? Was uh, Fort Dauntless? Was it you who was talking about the... Yes, it was. The return of the alliteration. Right? Um, uh, sudden burst of alliteration there. Right. From ever evens lofty hills where softly silver fountains fall. Right. Four words in a row. Softly silver fountains fall. And then we get wings him bore a wandering light behind the mighty mountain wall. Um, we get a real um, a lot of alliteration in that quatrain. Right. That quatrain really um, pulled together within individual lines, uh, though mountain wall. Uh, does recall, of course, the W's from the previous uh, line there uh, pretty clearly. Um, it's interesting that we get the L's in wall and fall, of course. Uh, you know, fountains fall and mountain wall. There's the end rhymes on lines two and four. Uh, but, of course, hills in line one um, doesn't rhyme, is not supposed to rhyme uh, with fountains fall and mountain wall. But, again, we get the, we get the double L there at the end of the line there as well. Um, so a lot of consonants. Uh, consonants with an NCE happening here. Um, uh, okay. And, um, lofty hills where softly silver fountains fall, his wings him bore a wandering light beyond the mighty mountain wall. Um, beyond the mighty mountain wall, um, means, I guess, the Pilori, right? The barrier of mountains. So in other words, what we're, what he's saying here is that, um, he is taking off, right? And flying over Valinor, right? Um, so he's still beyond the mighty mountain wall. He's still to the West, right? Um, and, uh, yeah, um, mad violinist, let's make sure we get the syntax right. What's the subject of the sentence here? From ever even's lofty hills, prepositional phrase, where softly silver fountains fall, subordinate clause, his wings him bore. Yeah, there it is. His wings him bore. That's our subject in verb. A wandering light beyond the mighty mountain wall, um, which is basically in a positive, right? His wings him bore. Wait, whom did it bear? You know, him. A wandering light beyond the mighty mountain wall. Where, where was the, where were his wings bearing him, right? Uh, his wings him bore. Okay. Um, so we have him flying. He is characterized as a wandering light beyond the mighty mountain wall. Um, we get the, the image of the lofty hills. Well, the image even contained in ever even, uh, followed by the lofty hills and then the sound where softly silver fountains fall, which is both a, 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 an oral and a visual image, right? 
um, a wandering light beyond the mighty mountain wall. From world's end, then, he turned away, and yearned again to find afar his home through shadows journeying, and burning as an island star, on high above the mists he came, a distant flame before the sun, a wonder ere the waking dawn where grey the Norland waters run. Yes, Iwendillion, he is in his flying ship, uh, and the light is the Silmaril. Yes, exactly. That's why he is a wandering light. Um, yes, again, Tony, you're right. Um, Arendel's name is suppressed here, right? His wings him bore. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, it's active voice technically, but, but I agree it's, um, it's speaking very indirectly of him, right? Um, not only is he only the the uh, a pronoun in this sentence, but it's it's like the flying is something that's happening to him, right? He is the he's still sort of the object of the action, even though wings bore him. His wings bore him is 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 an active verb. Um, I agree. It still does suppress the primary subject, right? This is not then Arendel flew a wandering light. Um, yeah, yeah, no, Tony, exactly. Yeah, we've been, I've been trying to suppress knowledge of the Silmarillion, uh, usually, right? Occasionally we let it sneak through, but I've been trying to suppress that, uh, here, trying to understand this from the context of Bilbo's poem. Um, yeah, now my mad violinist, that's an interesting question, right? Um, the wings were made by Elbereth, right? It's true that he's not serving his own, his own agenda, but the question, at least the question to me is, is he, I mean, is he driving the boat, right? Uh, you know, who's, who's, who's flying this thing, right? He's been given the wings and an undying doom has been laid upon him, but, uh, does he still have his hand on the, on the tiller, right? Of his ship? Um, I wonder. I kind of suspect that maybe he does. Uh, because of the way that his light is wandering and the second sentence, the last eight lines certainly does suggest that he has a hand on the tiller, right? I mean, from world's end, then he turned away. There we go. An active verb, a straightforward sentence from world's end. Then he turned away. He turned. Um, when was the last time, here's a little point of trivia, when was the last time that either A. Arendel or a pronoun referring to A. Arendel was the subject of a sentence? Like, actual, grammatically, the subject of a sentence, right? I mean, he is there, right? He turned away. When was the last time we saw him doing anything laid on him? Um, let's see... They built for him. No, it doesn't happen in that stanza. Uh, he tarried there from errantry. Good call, Fourth Dauntless. I think that's it. Because then they clothed him. Tidland uh, forlorn. He went. Okay, I guess you could say. Um, yeah. He went. Okay. He came unto the timeless halls. Okay, so we get a couple here. I mean, they're pretty, um, they're pretty, um, uh, I don't know. What's the word I want here? Um, milk toast verbs, right? He tarried, 
he came, he went, right? I mean, yeah, like, look, syntactically speaking, that's subject and verb, but they are kind of lame verbs. That is, they don't, they don't, I mean, he's, he's, to hidden land forlorn he went. Like, okay, he tarried there, not a real strong action on his part, but him going through the Calicurian is a big deal, right? And then he comes immediately after he went, right, unto the timeless halls. And from then on, it's all in direction, right? And all things happening to him and for him. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, stanza eight. So, and now, Flamifer, be careful here. You're talking about the morning star, right? What association do we have with the morning star, right? Do we have any reason to think that he's the morning star? I mean, I know we will eventually, right? But we have not now, right? Don't prejudge. Don't let other knowledge prejudge. Um, I mean, in fact, we've even seen Bilbo taking some liberties with what would appear to be the known facts, right? So let's stick with what we have here in the poem. Um, uh, yeah. Well, we're going to get there. Uh, we will be told that he's a wonder of the waking dawn. Sure. Yeah. He's going to be seen before the dawn comes. Um, but, uh, you know, that that day, right? We haven't, I'm just saying, we don't know yet, right? We don't know yet. Spoilers, spoilers. Um, but, um, cause here, I, several of you are arguing that he's not driving the boat, but he is. I mean, it says right there from world's end, then he turned away and yearned again to find afar his home through shadows journeying. So he turns away. We're told that he turns the ship away and we're told why. Right. It's in following his own desire that he turned away from the world's end. Right. World's end meaning Valinor. Right. Remember like, uh, that we, we got that image way back in like stanza uh, five. Yeah. Uh, where ends the world? The music long. Right. Um, the, the, she- the shores of Valinor are the end of the world. Right. Um, so from world's end then. So he's been all behind the, the, the mighty mountain wall. He's been all over in Valinor. Right? Wandering. Then from world's end, then he turned away. Why? And yearned again to find afar his home through shadows journeying. Okay? That's his desire. He wants to go back home. Through the shadows. Because, you know, he's been the other way and he knows there's shadows between him and them. So he's yearning again to find his home. And burning as an island star on high above the mists he came. And so there he goes. Right? There he goes, uh, heading back, right? The way he wants to go after he's turned away. This poem very strongly suggests that he is driving the, the boat, right? I mean, that's what it says in this sentence. In fact, not only do we get he turned, but notice what else we get. We get a bunch of verbs. What are the, what are the, ver- what are the verbs here? The main verbs, not subordinate clause verbs. Right? What is, uh, what are the main verbs? From world's end, then he turned away. So he turned away from world's end, then. Those are all adverbs talking about him, his turning. And yearned again to find afar. Compound verb. He turned, he yearned. Yearned again to find afar his home through shadows journeying, right? Journeying is not a main verb, 
right? That's uh, uh, through shadows journeying. That's that's a um, it's, it's a phrase, right? Describing like how is he going to get? It's, an, it's another adverbial phrase, right? He's going to find his home. How? Through shadows journeying, right? Okay, so he turned away and yearned again, and burning as an island star. No, that's not a verb either, right? First of all, notice the lack of parallelism. He turned and he yearned to past tense verbs. Those are parallel. Burning, eh, it's not parallel. So either Tolkien screwed it up or that's not a main verb. Spoiler, it's not a main verb. Uh, burning as an island star is another adverb. It's, 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 it's another adverbial phrase, right? Another participle, participial phrase. Burning as an island star on high above the mists, he came. He came, right? That's our main verb. Again, um, on high above the mists, he came a distant flame before the sun. A wonder ere the waking dawn, where gray the Norland waters run. Okay, so we get the three verbs about him, right? Okay, you guys are not following along with me here. You guys keep wanting to talk about Venus, and you keep wanting to talk about... Uh, what evidence do you have that he's not driving the boat? It says that he is. It says that he is. Right? Follow what the poem says. Keep in mind. I, I, I know. I know what's going on. But the point is not what we know to be going on. The point is what Bilbo is emphasizing in the poem. We know what brought him to Valinor. We know the errand that he was supposed to do. We know what he accomplished and how awesomely heroic he was, but the poem doesn't say it. And if we want to understand what the poem is emphasizing, we've got to forget the other stuff and pay attention to what it says. Right? Um, yes, like we, we have, what evidence is there that somebody else other than him is driving the boat? We're told here, he turned away. He's called a wandering light. He's we're told he turns away, which is associated with him yearning again to find afar. That's why he's turned away from World's End. And then high above the mists he came. Right? This is what he's doing. And he's do and we're even told why he wants to do it. Right? Again, I don't see anything in this stanza which implies or even I would almost go so far as to say, which even permits us or justifies us, perhaps a better way of saying it, in believing that he's not steering. All we were told, again, let's go back to the doom stanza, right? A ship then knew they built for him of mithril and of elven glass with shining prow. No shaven oar nor sail she bore on silver mast. The Silmaril is lantern light, and banner bright with living flame, to gleam thereon by Elbereth herself was set, who thither came and wings immortal made for him. So she makes wings, right? And laid on him undying doom to sail the shoreless skies and come behind the sun in light of moon. No, see forth Dauntless. Again, look 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 more carefully here. His undying doom is to sail the shoreless skies and come behind the sun in light of moon. Yes, we are given the parameters of where he can sail, but his undying doom is to sail. 
That's an active verb. That's a thing he's supposed to do. That's not something happening to him. The doom is happening to him, right? But the doom is not for him to suffer that. He's to sail the shoreless skies. That's what you do. Sail. That's the verb used when you're steering a boat, right? Um, and come behind the sun in light of moon. So that's, that's where, that's, that's what his fate, his destiny is to, sh- to sail the shoreless skies and come behind the sun in light of moon. Here's, here's one of the reasons that I'm leaning on this. Um, because I think, I think that uh, several, several of you are going a step too far here. Um, for a second, take out the word, take out the word undying, right? If it just said to sail the shore uh, and laid on, and laid on him a, a, a doom to sail the shoreless skies and come behind the sun in light of moon, that doesn't imply restraint of any kind. Right? Like, you know, an explorer's destiny is to find this foreign shore, right? His destiny, his doom, is to sail the shoreless skies and come behind the sun in light of moon. He is being empowered to do that, right? She has just, by her, by, by her own hand, right? By Elbereth herself, she has set the Silmaro on his ship and she has made for him wings immortal. She has given him the power to fly and therefore laid on him the doom to sail the shoreless skies and come behind the sun in light of moon. That's what he's meant to do. That's his doom. However, it is an undying doom. And I absolutely agree that that has an ominous ring, right? Um, that word does, I think, imply that there's a catch here, right? There's another side to this equation. But I think if we don't hear it as another side of the equation, if we see this all as pointing in the same direction, like here's what he's constrained to do, right? He's like the whole thing is like a prison sentence. It's not, right? He is given the doom of sailing the shoreless skies and coming behind the sun and light of moon like nobody's ever done before, right? Um, I mean, he can fly to where even the birds can't fly, right? He's not just given the power of flight. And I mean, this is amazing, right? But it's an undying doom, which means it never expires, right? Good news, probably, but also does suggest something else going on, right? And what do we immediately see? We immediately see, apparently, him doing what he wants to do, wandering. What's the first thing he does? Right? He gets wings on his boat. And the first thing he does is fly around and explore Valinor, apparently. From ever-evens lofty hills where softly silver fountains fall, his wings him bore. A wandering light beyond the mighty mountain wall. He's wandering around behind the mighty mountain wall. This is pretty cool. Right? Tour of Valinor. Can't blame him. I'd probably do the same thing. Then he goes on, right? From world's end, then he turned away and yearned again to find afar his home through shadows journeying. Okay, he he wants to go home, right? 
He wants to find afar his home through Shadow's journeying. As I mean, his home is afar away. He knows this, right? It was a long trip over here. Pretty eventful too, right? And 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 the night of naught, right? Ever night lies between them, right? So what does he do? But he's got a flying boat now, right? I mean, hey, like every night, no problem, right? I like, I you know, he owns the the, the ever night now, right? Why does he have to fear from every night? He doesn't have to fear any. Remember the storm that blew him back and everything? Pfft, no problem. He's above the winds. Oh, man. Right? So off we go. Right? I want to go home. I'm going home. From world's end, then he turned away and yearned again to find afar his home through shadows journeying and burning as an island star on high above the mists he came. Right? A distant flame before the sun. A wonder ere the waking dawn, where gray the Norland waters run. They see him. Right? He gets his wish. Sort of. Notice the ironic phrasing of his desire. He yearned again to find afar his home through shadows journeying. Afar. Afar is the tricky word there, right? He wants to find his home, which is afar off, right? But that's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is he's going to find his home afar. That is, he's going to find it from a great distance, right? He's going to see it from way, way far away. Um... And they're going to see him. A wonder ere the waking dawn, where gray the Norland waters run. Now, think about that. Ere the waking dawn? What happened? What happened? Think about the time thing, right? Ever even? What just happened? You see? He's gone back. He's gone back. He passed through every night and came not to the morning, but to the evening, right? To ever even, in fact, to the timeless halls of the elder king, right? Now he's going back, leaving the world's end behind, crossing over the mighty mountain wall, leaving the world's end behind, going through the shadows back through every night, and he returns back through every night ere the waking dawn, right? He comes with the morning, before the morning. And before the sun, he is seen as a wonder, right? A distant flame before the sun, a wonder ere the waking dawn, where gray the Norland waters run. Um, do you see what else syntactically happens here? Notice... Who doesn't appear? Just as A. Arendel didn't appear in some parts earlier on, who doesn't appear here? Anybody? Right? Anybody? Who's, who sees him? Why? What does it mean? We don't know. 
A distant flame before the sun, a wonder ere the waking dawn, where gray the Norland waters run. In that place, you know, the place where the Norland waters run gray, he was a wonder ere the waking dawn. Somebody must have seen him, right? I, I mean, I presume it's not the gray waters themselves which are wondering, right, to see him. Um, but it's a, it seems to be some kind of miraculous sign in the sky, but notice even that, what I just said, miraculous sign that goes beyond what the poem emphasizes, right? We get almost nothing about the people who are looking up to see it, which is interesting, right? Interesting because once again, this is Bilbo uh, burying the lead, right? Once again, like, so what did Arendel accomplish? Because, I mean, if you have the cheek to make verses about Arendel in the House of Elrond, what are you going to make sure to do? Probably, you'd think. Oh, I don't know. Maybe make sure that you, like, do justice to the awesomeness of what he accomplished, maybe. Right? That might That might be prudent. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He didn't do it before. We don't even know what the errand was. What did Arendel do? Don't know. Um, here, what is the reaction to him? What What are the after effects of his bringing his doing that thing that he went over there to do? We don't know. We don't know. Um. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Matt, I suppose it could be the talking foxes, of course, who were wondering. Uh, we don't necessarily know that people saw it. You're absolutely right. Um, uh, the Norland, that's a very vague term, Iwendillian, a deliberately vaguing, vague term. Uh, it just means the Northlands. Literally, I mean, it's, it's like a, it's like a contraction, essentially, of the Northlands. It couldn't, could scarcely be vaguer, right? Um, you know, in the northern part of the Great Lands, right? So the vaguely Beleriandic region is where wonder was happening, right? At this, at this point. Um, why? Why be vague? What, or rather, again, the why question is almost always a bad question. What is the effect of that vagueness? To me, the, 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 the function of that vagueness, the effect of that vagueness is to emphasize the distance between Arendel and the people, right? He yearns again to find afar his home through shadows journeying, and what he does is find it afar. What can he see? From where he is. The continent. That's all he can see. Is the continent. He can't see the people. He can't see people like pointing up and seeing. Right? He. Probably. Guesses. That they're experiencing wonder. Right? That he's probably visible from there. And that they're going to notice that. 
Um, but yeah, yeah, it's um, not very clear, right? Because he can't see them. He's really, he's only seeing them from afar. He can see his home, right? Kind of like you can see from an airplane at 37,000 feet. Or better, how you could see it from the International Space Station, right? You can see your home, right? The planet, the continent. Um, but he can't see anything else. He's cut off from his people, from his home, by this distance. And I think that the distance, that the vagueness of that last stanza is really powerful in that way. A distant flame before the sun. Notice how the distance is emphasized there. Notice all those distant words. From afar onwards. Burning as an island star on high above the mists he came. A distant flame before the sun. A wonder ere the waking dawn where gray the Norland waters run. High above, distant flame, island star, an island star. And what does that mean? Island, in the sense of, well, if he's the only star you can see in the sky, right? As the, you know, the, the, the sun that's about to rise has already covered up most of the stars, right? And so it looks like a star. It's, it's, a, it's a lonely island star. Right? Because it's the only star that you can see around it. But of course, it's also a star which is like an island. Right? He is isolated in that star. He's not gone home. He's just come above his home and is seeing it from a really, really far distance. Right? No star is an island, except for this one, Kurtzimus, right? Uh, absolutely. Um, yes. Um, yeah. And again, Norland waters, right? All he can see is the Norlands, generally. Let's keep going. And over Middle-earth he passed, and heard at last the weeping sore of women and of elven maids in elder days and years of yore. But on him mighty doom was laid, till moon should fade, an orbed star to pass and tarry nevermore on hither shores where mortals are. For ever still a herald on, an errand that should never rest, to bear his shining lamp afar, the flamifer of Westerness." So yes, J.J., the first thing we get is a connection to his home, of a sort. And over Middle-earth he passed, and heard at last the weeping sore of women and of elven maids in elder days in years of yore. When he passes over Middle-earth, he hears the weeping sore of women and of elven, and of elven maids. So he can hear them. Right? Um, yes, Tony, I do assume that when he says women and of elven maids, that the distinction he's making is between human women and elven women, not between 
women who are married and women who are still virgins, which is, of course, one but possible way to read the distinction between women and maids. But I don't think that that's it. I think it's between mortal women and elven women there. Um, uh, so... <laughs> yes, Mike, exactly. He does hear the lamentation of their women. So he is one third of the way to Conan the Barbarian's paradise. Absolutely. Yes. Um, uh, and in the last battle, arguably, Mike, he gets the other two, right? Uh, you know, in his fight with the winged dragons, he does get to crush his enemies and see them run before him. So there you go. He's got, he's got it all. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Oh, he really does the, the, the barbaric trifecta there. Um, okay. But anyway, back to the point. <laughs> um, uh, now remember. What should we be associated with the hearing? This is not from within the poem, but it is from within the Fellowship of the Ring. Forget, again, don't think of the Silmarillion, though you might remember it from the Silmarillion too. What is interesting about the fact that he's hearing the people and specifically what he's hearing from the people? What should that make us think of? What should we associate with this? Yes, Elbereth, trifle, absolutely, fourth dauntless, yes, Elbereth. We know that Elbereth can hear. We know this because of of Gilder's song, right? The hymn to Elbereth that we've already heard. We know that she hears the people. We know that she heard Frodo, right, uh, at Weathertop. Um, and, of course, remember, she is the one who is named, the only one who is named, in this poem, right? So she personally sets the Silmaril and gives wings to him, right? Um, and we see that he seems to have received something of her blessing or to be given, a, a, you know, a, a, a modicum of her power as well to hear the weeping sore of women and of elven maids, right? He hears their lamentations, can't get that word out of my head now. Um, in elder days, in years of yore. What do you make of that line? Doesn't, isn't that one a little strange? I mean, we'd been talking about, like, we'd been in the moment there, Right? I mean, that last sentence in stanza eight here, that eight-line sentence there, it's all action, right? We get Arendel's doing stuff. He's doing three things. He turned away. He yearned again. He came uh, high above the mists, right? This is an action sequence. And then it sounds like it's still an action sequence at the beginning of stanza nine. And over Middle-earth he passed. Ta-da! And heard at last another compound verb. He passed over Middle-earth and heard at last the weeping sore of women and of elven maids. So what happened then? And then all of a sudden, in elder days, in years of yore. I mean, okay, yeah, 
we knew that, right? I mean, right? We didn't we? It's kind of been established from the beginning, but why are we bringing that up now? Why are we interrupting this action sequence to just, like, randomly say, P.S., this action sequence brought to you in the elder days. You know, the years of yore. It seems like an odd conclusion. Doesn't it? Right. It's not just regular weeping for Thoughtless. It's legendary weeping. Weeping of a legendary variety, right? I agree. I agree. Trifle, that's a great observation. In the last stanza, we, we had established the physical distance, and now we're getting a time distance as well. Yeah, and Tony, I agree. It emphasizes how long he's been doing this. Yeah, Crownless is wondering, are the elven made still weeping? Exactly. Um, let me ask another question. Why does the next line begin with but? Okay. In order to answer that question, let us look at the syntax of the final sentence of the poem, which is the last eight lines. Right? Last eight lines of the stanza. On him mighty doom was laid, till moon should fade, an orbed star to pass and tarry nevermore on hither shores where mortals are. Semicolon. Okay, hang on. Subject verb of that first independent clause. We've got a semicolon, so that means we've had an independent clause. And it gets tricky again because passive verb again. We go back into the passive voice. Doom was laid, mad violinist, that's exactly it. Doom was laid on him. What kind of doom? A mighty doom was laid on him. By whom? I don't know. It doesn't say. Right? It quite specifically doesn't say who laid on him the mighty doom. Right? Now, we might suspect, of course, that the mighty doom here is perhaps the same as the undying doom, which Elbereth definitively laid upon him, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, that's probable. But again, in this sentence, she's not mentioned again. So, yeah, I, 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 I don't think it's like trying to hide it. But again, it doesn't say it. Um, once again, we have this same pattern of a passive voice verb with no doer of the action mentioned in that sentence. Right? Okay, but anyway. On him mighty doom was laid. Uh, what is the mighty doom? Till moon should fade, an orbed star to pass, and tarry nevermore on hither shores where mortals are. So the doom, his doom is to pass an orb is 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 it's a little bit complicated um to pass like as an orbit star and tarry nevermore on hither shore so he's 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 not supposed to tarry to tarry nevermore on hither shores where mortals are he can't stop on hither shores where mortals are he can't go back but, uh, 
more. We've got, first of all, let's settle the orbit star business. Yes. Okay, good. Several viewers. Right. So an orbit star to pass. He is a star within his orb. So, yes, this means he is restricted to, he is um, an orbit star, which does mean he is a planet. Yes, he is in a planetary sphere. Um, for him to be orbit, I used to think for years, like, you know, when I was younger, when I first read this poem, I thought that an orbit star meant that he was round, right? Like he had been, like, made round in some way. Like, um, you know, I, I didn't get orbit. I had no idea what orbit meant. I'm like, or an orb is a, a ball, so he's been made into a ball, is 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 how I always understood those lines, um, and Aaron uh, <laughs> like Bomber has grown spectacularly fat. Yeah, I guess I guess Bomber is kind of orbit as well <laughs> by the end. <laughs> oh boy, um, yes, <laughs> that is the most unflattering image. <laughs> I have to admit, when I imagined him being made round into a star, I did not imagine him being plumped up to the point where he his physical his personal body swelled uh, out there. I I think I had always imagined myself. I had always pictured him like in a like in a snow globe, you know. It's like he was an orbit star, so like the little flying ship like sealed into an orb of light, basically, is how I think I had always pictured it. Um, but, um, um, but anyway, yeah. So, um, mad violinist, you are of course exactly correct. Uh, when I, uh, went to college and learned about the Ptolemaic solar system, um, you know, the, 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 the medieval, uh, uh, worldview that yes, th that's clearly the orb in question and the sense in which you are an orbit star. And that is he travels within the sphere, uh, his own celestial sphere. Right. Um, and to be an orb to pass as an orbit star, like an orbit star to pass, right. Uh, means that he to be orbit therefore means to be restricted within that orb. He can't leave it. Right. He can't leave it. Um, but on him mighty doom was laid till moon should fade, an orbid star to pass, and tarry nevermore on hither shores where mortals are. He can't cross that distance that is between him and the Norland, right? His home and the people of his home. Um, why? Forever still an errand on, an errand that should never last never rest to bear his shining lamp afar, the flamifer of Westerness. Do we get his, do we get another subject and verb? No. Forever still a herald on an errand that should never let rest to bear his shining lamp afar, the flamifer of Westerness. Hmm. Hmm. 
Sorry, I'm trying to parse this. I'm like diagramming this sentence in my head and it's not going well. Forever still a herald on an errand that should never rest. Okay, so... Still a herald on an errand modifying herald or still, perhaps. He's still on an errand. An errand that should never rest. Adjectival clause describing errand. To bear his shining lamp afar. That describes the errand. Yeah. The unerrand to bear his shining lamp afar. The flamifer of westerness. Which is an appositive describing lamp. I think. I mean, it describes his, him. Yeah, so flamifer means bearer of the flame. Um, yes, the bearer of the flame. Here's one of the things that I'm... So, yes, Lucifer is the same kind of word. I mean, so Flamifer and Lucifer are parallel in the sense that the if-her ending means one who carries, and Lucifer means, you know, the, uh, the you know, uh, luce is light in Latin, and, and uh, the, so you've got the bearer of the flame, the bearer of the light. Um, the thurifer, right, is the dude who goes down, uh, who goes down the, the, who processes down the aisle with the, uh, the incense, in the swinging orb, and he 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 incenses the congregation, which is my favorite verb to use out of context. Um, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so that's uh, means to, the thurifer is the one who bears the incense, right? Which is what that means. Uh, and yes, you are Christopher, uh, the one who bears Christ. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, so that's what um, all of those things uh, mean. So, um, flamifer means bearer of the flame. Sorry, I'm still having problems with my diagramming. Maybe this is the next reenactment we need to do. Reenact the <laughs> diagramming of this sentence. Okay. Um, I have no idea what Jennifer means. It looks like the same thing, right? The ifer ending. Um, Christopher, I can make sense of. Jennifer, I'm not sure I can. Does anybody know what the gen part means in Jennifer? Is it bearing the something or other? You'd, I, you'd think so. Looks like it. Um, <laughs> bearer of genies <laughs> quite possibly <laughs> yeah yeah i i think it's it's not from the same origin i think <laughs> but it's kind of fun <laughs> yeah oh well oh well um 
Jenny is a word for a donkey. You are so correct. The bearer of the donkey. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. That's funny. Um, <laughs> I know. I know. It's a Welsh name. I know. It comes from Guinevere. Yes. Uh, but, uh, but it's funnier to think of uh, Jennifer as the bearer of the donkey. But anyway, okay. Let me get back to my grammar. Um, but on him mighty doom was laid till moon should fade and orbid star to pass and tarry never more on hither shore where mortals are forever still a herald on an errand that should never rest to bear his shining lamp afar the flamifer of westerness yeah matt i agree with you that this um seems i mean so the first thing to notice is that as is it's not, in fact, an independent clause, which you'd think it would be, which it really should be following um, following a semicolon. Now, in the first half of the 20th century, they were a lot looser with things like that. You, you will see things like which modern English teachers would call comma splices, for instance. Um, you can find those in Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, for instance. But um, but I think if we if we. Um, yes, Westerness does refer to Numenor, Kurtzimus. That's, uh, uh, Westerness is, that's a translation of the word Numenor. Um, that is exactly what that is. Um, but hang on, we're not, <laughs> I'm not to words. I'm still on syntax. Uh, okay. So if, as Matt suggested, we hear an implied he is, he is forever still an errand, a herald on an errand that should never rest to bear. And uh, who was it who wanted a colon after rest? Because I totally agree with you. That'd be lovely. Um, we were all distracted talking about Jennifer <laughs> and uh, got carried away. But anyway, I'm, I forget. Somebody was saying they wanted a, a colon after that, and I completely agree. Um, okay. I was Iwin Dillian? Okay. Thanks, Thomas. Okay. Iwin Dillian, you're correct. I would like that, too. An errand that should never rest to bear his shining colon. Phantom colon. To bear his shining lamp afar the flamifer of westerness. I want to call it after a far too. Oi. Oi. Sorry, I'm having all manner of problems here. Um Here's Here's the reason I'm having all manner of problems. Syntactically, I know the flamifer of westerness. Okay, here's the, the, the essential part of my doubt. The essential part of my doubt here lies in what is the flamifer of westerness? Is A. Arendel the flamifer of westerness? 
Probably. Probably. Yes, to bear his shining lamp. I mean, the verb to bear is in the previous line. And if he's bearing his shining lamp, then that makes him, by definition, the flammifer. Because he's burying, bearing, not burying, that's a totally different thing. He's bearing the flame, the shining lamp. So the flame in question is the flame of the Silmaril. And he is bearing his shining lamp, which makes him the flammifer of Westerness. Yeah, the Silmaril is the flame. He is the flammifer, by definition. Because that's his errand. His errand, you know, the errand that should never rest, that one, is to bear his shining lamp afar. Which is why he's known as the Flamifer of Westerness. I'll come back to Westerness in a second. Um, uh, the flame imagery has been associated with him several times already. Right? I mean, we just got that. A distant flame before the sun, burning as an island star. Um, so he's uh, a wandering light, sort of more neutrally first, but then he's burning, and then he's a distant flame, right? So associated with flame. Yeah. He's the lamp bearer. He's the flame bearer. He's the flammifer. Okay. He is the flammifer of Westerness. Um, see... Flamifer. Now, this is confusing, Flamifer. This is maximally confusing, uh, because, of course, we have a Discord, a person in Discord whose name is Flamifer. Uh, so to, to refer to you by name while discussing this line is particularly challenging. But I have to correct you about your comment about your name, because um, his ship is not referred to. Again, that's why I'm laboring over the syntax. I'm not just doing this uh, because I'm like super persnickety, because I'm totally not. Uh, I am doing it because I, we need to follow what the poem tells us, right? And his ship is not referred to. His ship forms no part of the structure of this entire sentence, all the way back to the butt, Right. On him mighty doom was laid till moon should fade an orbed star to pass and tarry nevermore on hither shores where mortals are forever still a herald, which is the job of a person on an errand like a person would do that should never rest to bear his shining lamp afar, the flammifer of Westerness. His boat is ancient history. I, yes, his boat is there. I'm not saying he's not in his boat, but again, that's not... Uh, that's nowhere emphasized in here. So we can't draw the conclusion that say that his ship is being referred to, the, to as the Flamifer because his ship isn't even being referred to, full stop, right, in this sentence. Uh, and again, this is why it's so important to focus on the words that are there, right, to focus on the, uh, on, on the, the, the phrasing and to work out the syntax here. Um, so, okay. Um, The emphasis in this final sentence is on the mighty doom that is laid on him, right? And all of the things which follow are essentially explaining what the doom is. On him mighty doom was laid. Till moon should fade. So, 
For how long is this doom laid upon him? Until the moon shall fade. What is the doom? Uh, to pass as an orbit star. That's what the doom is. And also, uh, to tarry nevermore on hither shores where mortals are. That's also part of the doom. Right? Forever still a herald on, an errand that should never rest, to bear his shining lamp afar, the flamifer of westerness. So, forever still a herald. So this last bit, it's it's not exactly continue like in the first half of the sentence there it really is like stating the doom and then telling us about the doom till moon should fade an orbit star to pass and tarry nevermore in hither shore where, where mortals are the next part it's associated with the doom but it's no longer modifying it grammatically right he is or he has been doomed to be forever still a herald on an errand that should never rest to bear his shining lamp afar. Okay. Um, yeah. His errand should never rest. Notice how much less grandiose that is than on him mighty doom was laid. On him mighty doom was laid. Um, sounds like a huge big deal, right? Um, to have an errand that should never rest just kind of sounds like a bit of a nuisance, right? Um, you see what I mean? There's a there's a descent in the diction here, right? In the level of the diction, you see? Forever still a herald on an errand that should never rest to bear his shining lamp afar. That's his job, to bear the lamp. Um... Yeah, errand is not an errand is not a that's not an elevated word. That's not a grandiose word. Um Fourth Dauntless is asking, is this a deliberate contrast to his previous errantry? Yeah, I mean Yes, the words are similar, right? But like he tarried there from errantry means something different. Right. This doesn't mean he'd been doing he, he was in the middle of Aaron's day. Right. He'd been running a bunch of errands, but he paused for a little while. Right. To learn some melodies. Right. That's not what's being said in that line. Errantry. Yes, the words are connected, um, but he tarried there from errantry is very different. Right. There he's. Yes, he's being a knight errant. He is wandering about uh, accomplishing deeds. Right. Um, and doing quests. Um, just like in, in Lotro, right? Um, then at the end, he's on an errand. An errand that should never rest. Hmm. 
Yeah, sorry. Just wanted to go back to that stanza for a second. Okay. Um, to bear his shining lamp afar. Why? Ah, Iwendillion. Interesting that you should mention. Um, interesting that you should mention uh, rescuing maidens. Right? Let me go back to the question I was asking before. Why does this sentence start with the word but? Why does the sentence start with but? Look what directly comes before it. And over Middle-earth he passed, and heard at last the weeping sore of women and of elven maids in elder days, in years of yore. But on him mighty doom was laid. Yeah, Fourth Dauntless, I think that's exactly it. Exactly, good. Uh, Fourth Dauntless and Iwin Dillian and uh, Tony and Bruni are all thinking the same thing. He can't rescue the maidens. He can't rescue the maidens. He heard at last the weeping sore of women and of elven maids. So what did he do about it? Nothing. But on him mighty doom was laid till moon should fade and orbit star to pass and tarry never more on hither shores where mortals are. He can hear the lamentations of the women, the women and the elven maids, but he can't do anything about it. He can't come down and respond to them. He can't come down and rescue them. But on and so remember that sentence starts with but, right? So everything in the final sentence of the poem, everything that follows is linked to what came before by the but, right? But on him mighty doom was laid. Think about how that sentence would be different if it started with, say, four, right? For on him mighty doom was laid till moon should fade an orbid star to pass and tarry nevermore on hither shores where mortals are. Right? Sounds a little nicer, right? But when you start with but, the entire context of that is his... I was going to say helplessness. That's not quite right. At least a little unfair. Um, but powerlessness. But he's restricted. He's constrained. That's exactly right. The but does make it tragic, Mike. Absolutely. But on him mighty doom was laid till moon should fade an orbid star to pass. An orbid star to pass. That That's the mighty doom. He's going to pass as an orbid star. The orbid is the really important word there, right? Which talks about his constraint, right? The, his mighty doom is that he is constrained to his orb and he can't leave that orb. He can't come any closer to the hither shores than his orb allows. Forever still a herald on an errand that should never rest. We didn't get to talk about herald. A couple of you wanted to talk about Harold before when I was waving you off and saying we had to do sy syntax before words, but let's talk about that one now. Harold. What does that mean? In what sense 
Is he a herald? Harold and Erend do seem to be connected choices for Thalmas, of course, heavily emphasized by the fact that they are part of that internal internal rhyming pair, right? Flamifer, I still disagree with you about driving his ship. No evidence. He's passing. He's 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 doomed to pass as an orbit star, right? Well, the emphasis here is not about his motion laterally. It's about vertically, right? He can't. His doom is to tarry nevermore on hither shores where mortals are. He can't come to the shores. Okay, anyway, but he's um, he's a herald on an errand that should never rest to bear his shining lamp afar. Um, hang on a second. Several of you are going to the Silmarillion for explanations. I, it's going to be 33 years before we know that. Right? Um... Is it a slanting reference to his job of heralding dawn? Uh, maybe. Maybe. Do we even know that? Could we construct from this poem that he is the morning star? I don't know that we could. We might guess it, right? We might. We know that he appeared right before the dawn, the first time, right? But what does that signify, right? Do we know that he did it every day thereafter? A wonder ere the waking dawn, exactly. Yep. The wonderful, first wonderful time he appeared, that is when it happened. But, um... Yeah, hey, good. I'm not trying to just, like, kind of play dumb with that. Um, I mean, I think that you're quite right. Um, for Thoughtless, we've got a bunch of hints in that direction. You can dismiss them individually, but they do add up. Um, I agree. For Thoughtless, the way that I would put it in that way, you could see this as a kind of riddle, almost, right? Like we're supposed to put together at the end and be like, oh, it's the morning star, right? Maybe, maybe. I think that there could be a kind of riddle-like element to this poem in that way. Um... But, um, yeah, yeah. No, again, we get lots of things there. Arendel is Venus. That's more than I know. Right. Um, but again, most importantly, what does the poem emphasize? What is the poem about? And we have to be very careful not to free associate, not to free associate, right? Don't just go with like, well, we know he's the morning star. And so what does that make us think of? Don't go Silmarillion associating, because if you do that, you'll go yourself in different directions than the directions the poem is pushing you.
he's a herald to Middle-earth. If we remember the Silmarillion stuff, we'll know that he is a herald of hope. But hang on a second. Gosh, notice that that's also not mentioned in the poem at all. Right? It's not about hope. I mean, we know it is, right? But is there any whiff of it? When he is seen, when the star of hope arises, what are we told? We're told of his frustration, his hearing the lamentation and him not being able to do anything about it. Exactly. It's not hope for Arendel. Tony. Yes, as Mike says, the poem is about how Arendel ends up sad and lonely. Yes, Mad Violinist says it's about his doom, not about what his doom brings for others. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, Tarlonio remembers uh, 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 Gilrein's line, right? I gave hope to the Dunedain, I left none for myself. Yeah, we see her kind of mirroring Arendel there. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, yeah, Mad Violinist, I agree. It's, it's rather as if you wrote about the crucifixion without talking about salvation. Yeah, I mean, yes, it is this is a very, very remarkable version of the Arendel story. Because it tells us, yes, as Mike says, this is maybe not an angle on the Arendel story that the elves might take. Yeah. And Mike, let me, let's follow that up for a second. What kind of angle is it? The angle is from hither shores where mortals are. Right? This is a mortal point of view poem. Looking at Arendel and Arendel's story from the point of view of a mortal. Right? Exactly. This is, um, Matt, as you were suggesting, this is, a, this is a poem about what happens to mortals when they go to the world's end. Right? When they go to Valinor. Um, and... He's an, an undying doom, a mighty doom is laid upon him, right? And look, it's a mighty doom. And that word also is ambiguous, right? The primary sense in this stanza would seem to be mighty in the sense of like the doom is powerful, right? He can't fight the doom. He can't change the doom because it's a very mighty doom that is laid on him, right? Which is going to last until the moon fades, right? But, um, but it's also mighty, perhaps. I mean, it leaves open the fact that it could be mighty in another sense, right? That is, um, it, it's a mighty doom. He accomplishes mighty things. Great good things happen. Through him, because of him, because of his doom, right? 
But it's like those things, which are normally the primary point of the A.R. Rendell story, are the secondary point of the A.R. Rendell story. Um, Trifle says that it's interesting. It's an interesting take that this is what happens to mortals who go to fairy when Bilbo will end up doing just that himself. Yes. Um, and I'd add one thing more. It's an interesting, it's interesting that the, this is what happens when mortals go to fairy thing is being sung by Bilbo when he is essentially in fairy himself. He is a mortal living among elves. Right. He has been most of the time. That is whenever Aragorn isn't visiting um, the only mortal in the joint, he has moved out of mortal lands. He's left the Shire behind and gone to live among the elves in Rivendell. Right. And. There he is, the only mortal in the place. Most of the time. Right. The only mortal in the place. And he tells the story of Eärendil and makes it into a story of what happens when mortals cross that line and go to be among immortals. And strange things happen to him. This is a fairy story, ultimately. Right? A story about a mortal who has crossed into fairy, Flamifer, as you were suggesting. Yeah. Ultimately, that's what this is. Um, and it's very beautiful. And it's very great. I mean, he's not insulting Eärendil. He's not lessening Eärendil. In fact, what it is, is, is a very kind of sympathetic view of Eärendil, right? Um... For Thoughtless asks, is there anything in the poem that suggests Eärendil is human and not elf kind? What are we told about Eärendil at the beginning? He's a mariner. Here we go. He's got the panoply of ancient kings. We got nothing. Nor about Elwing. Other than that she could fly, which is a little unusual. Yeah. Um, now, we know from the Silmarillion that he is of mixed heritage, right? But um, we don't know anything else. Crownless, I agree. Flying is more than a little unusual, but you know what's even more unusual, <laughs> Crownless, is just dropping that in and not even explaining it at all. Their flying Elwing came to him. Like you do. Right? You know. It's, it's all good. Um, yeah. Belongsmond, I agree. The only thing that... To, his own heritage is not discussed, right? Um, but... Um, uh, but any... So, yeah. So, his... his um, 
his heritage is not discussed in the poem. Um, but um, the time mortality is brought up about like by uh, like here, right? A wind of power in Tarmanel by paths that seldom mortal goes his boated bore, right? Which sounds like he is coming from the mortal place, right? Now, saying that he is being born by paths that seldom mortal goes doesn't prove that he's mortal, but seems to put him, I was about to say, in the same boat, but that would be just too awful. Um, but anyway, when he gets to Elvenholm, right, um, you know, when he gets to the end of the world, he's left the mortal lands behind, and he's now, he goes through the Calicurian and he's in the timeless halls and he's beyond the world. Um, the only time mortal, immortal, is right, his wings are immortal. The only time that the word mortal, I think, is used in the poem is to describe the lands that he comes from, right? Because he wants to, he yearned again to find afar his home, right? Um, yeah, on hither shores where mortals are. Um, yeah. Brandon, that's a really wonderful point. Um, Brandon says it's it's interesting appealing to Elrond and his family's human side in this poem, considering the decision that Arwen has made, or is at least considering. Yeah, that's a wonderful point. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, we know he's plainly associated with the mortal lands, right? As opposed to the undying lands, right? To the immortal lands. Um, yeah. Yeah, Valor is asking, do we even know much about elven immortality or mortality at this point? Explicitly? Hmm. Yeah, not sure. Um, yeah, so Mike is reminded of that poem. He says, this makes me think of Aragorn's Luthien poem. The prose summary had all the events. The poem had the emotion. Here we get the emotion. He can't ever go home. Uh, makes me want to cry, but we don't get the prose summary with all the action. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll get some exposition in the council. Keep this in mind. Keep this in mind. This question about elvish mortality or immortality. Keep this in mind when Frodo interrupts Elrond in the council. It's going to be important. We should get to that soon. Gosh. What? Like by Christmas, probably. Um, yes. Yes. Yep. Yeah, I know that's cool. Okay. Yeah, the line that is drawn in the poem is very clearly between the mortal lands on the hither shores 
hither, meaning from where we're sitting, right? So our world. Um, and then, um, on the other side is the world's end, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we do have yet another poem in this chapter, Trifle, I know. But it's a short one. It's a short one. And in Quenya. So it's all good. Um, now, Kimber, I agree that Bilbo's audience is elves and he doesn't need to summarize the plot and explain who the characters are. Agreed. Um, but um, Which undoubtedly is why he doesn't do it. Um, but the point is, we need a summary, right? Um we still don't know anything about almost any of this. Um, remember that parallel. Remember that f that the, the parallel between Bilbo and Arendel, right? Um, talk about cheeky, right? Um, you realize that? You realize that one way to paraphrase this poem would be Elrond... I know just how your dad felt, <laughs> right? I mean, dang, <laughs> that's pretty cheeky <laughs> right there. I mean, good grief. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, how does Bilbo know this? How, how does Bilbo know? Well, I think Bilbo is just imagining how, uh, how Arendelle feels. Um, Bilbo can never go home either? Well, not really. Um, yeah, how your dad felt when he left you behind. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. Bilbo's, there's no, I mean, any reason to, th I mean, there's any opportunity Bilbo has had over the last 17 years to hear the story of Arendelle. But he's undoubtedly never heard it like this, right? And remember, we were talking before about um, delight in mortal poetry, 